Welcome to another edition of Smith and Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Subscribe to Smith and Jones wherever you get your podcast. Download, subscribe, rate, and review, and also share it. And uh, we had a very busy week last week, not only with the podcast, but then, of course, with the Masai Ujiri press conference, which led into, Jonesy, the firing of Nick Nurse. So our pod climbed up into the top 10 in Canada for basketball podcast so thanks to all of you for tuning in and let's uh let's get back into the top 10 heck let's reach for top five let's reach for number one overall we've got a great show coming up this week uh and we're going to get to our first guest in a couple of moments but uh before any of that uh at least as we are having this conversation right now we can talk about the fact that the miami heat the number eight seed have upset the number one milwaukee bucks a bit more of a minor upset, the five over four with the Knicks knocking out the Cavaliers. So now it's New York and Miami in round two. And with no disrespect to the Knicks, a ton of credit to them. I did not see that coming. I thought the Cavs were going to win in five or six. They proved me wrong. I thought that the Bucks were going to be in the finals. In fact, I think I might have even picked Milwaukee to win the title this year. Clearly, I was dead wrong on that as well. But what a performance, Jonesy, from Jimmy Butler, not just in the... Um, decisive game, but in the series overall, he has taken his game to another level yet again. And I am, I'm, I, I don't say this lightly. I'm shocked. I'm shocked by how easy Miami made it look against the Bucks uh, throughout that series. Yeah, playoff Jimmy is real, uh, Eric, and and uh, I was I was surprised. I kept waiting for Milwaukee to come back. I like you had a finals rematch from two years ago with Milwaukee yep. and Phoenix. And what it did for me, and I don't often do this because I'm at a different level. I've sat in that chair and I know how many things go through your head as a coach, but um, it's not Mike Budenholzer, but some of his assistants and some of the tactics uh, that they use. And like I said, I'm not one for second guessing the coach. He knows his team or she knows her team better than anybody else and what will work and what won't work. But I was kind of surprised to hear Giannis talking about uh, not guarding Jimmy Butler. You've got a guy who's a you know potential defensive player of the year every year, and he doesn't square up Jimmy Butler at any point when Jimmy Butler is hooking people. He said, out of respect for Drew Holiday, he didn't do that. And that's not a question I ask the coaches. They put the game plan out and I just follow it. So I, I, I wondered about some of that uh, when Jimmy Butler scored his uh, layup at the end with his back looking like he was in the Olympic diving competition with a, a back layout, putting that one up and in. There was five-tenths of a second left. Milwaukee had a timeout. Why don't you use it? Advance the ball. Maybe you get a foul on the inbound. Maybe you get a tip play. Maybe you get a foul on a catch-and-shoot uh, and, and win the game. I, I was just kind of surprised by some of the decisions. And give Miami credit, though. Jimmy Butler was terrific. He really, really was. And all the guys supporting him thought Kyle Lowry came alive at the right time in, in some of those games. The Heat just played hard and, you know, perpetuating the idea of Heat culture. And there they are in the second round. And I'm telling you, and Eric, unlike you, I did see the Knicks winning that. I like Cleveland. I like their ability. I just think there's a little bit of a soft underbelly there. They need a little more sandpaper, uh, and and it was it was proven again last year down the stretch. They got hurt by injuries, but this year 
they were relatively healthy and they didn't have to me quite the grit to match New York, but old time, Eric, back to the nineties, New York and Miami. <laughs> and uh, you know that Jimmy Butler does not want to lose to Tom Thibodeau at the other end. They were together for many years in Chicago and in Minnesota and made music together. But right now it's the battle of the bands. You know that Tibbs is going to scheme for Jimmy Butler and Jimmy Butler does not want to lose to New York. Well, and, and, and I'll say this either way, like, obviously you, you, you had the inside track, I guess on, on, on New York. I, I listen, I'm, I'm, I wasn't trying to take anything away from the Knicks. I just thought it was a case of, um, you know, having to, having to lose before you could win, having to take that step back before you can take that step forward. And I thought Cleveland with the core that they had as a top four team with the size and the length they had with the rebounding. And clearly that meant nothing in the closeout game because offensive rebounding, I mean, Mitchell Robinson, let alone the rest of the Knicks, were just destroying the Cavaliers. But Jonesy, I step back and now look at it and go, and this is why I sent out the tweet that I did, and I'm, I'm, I'm plugging myself here, but, and I know you say the same thing all the time as well. We've been working together a long time. Just give me a chance. Get me in. That's yep. why I'm never buying into the tank. Give me a chance to get in. Give me a chance to have an opportunity to pull an upset. Did anybody see Miami winning? I shouldn't say that nobody saw it, but very few did. And now one of the Knicks or the Heat are going to be in the Eastern Conference final minimum. Minimum. And I don't yeah. know how many people would have seen that coming. And just give me a chance. And what that then does for the development of your team moving forward. Like hypothetically, if Miami were to advance, I mean, they're already a destination, right, Jonesy, because of Miami, because of the tax situation, because of the weather. Yes, that's good. Plus, they have talented players, and they've got a good mix of veteran and young. But I would say that they are a little bit older than perhaps the Knicks. The Knicks, a team that has struggled for a while to really land the big fish. They got a pretty damn good fish last year in, in Brunson, but they've got still that young core of pieces that they're going to move along, move along. And now you start going like, hold on a second, Eastern Conference final, maybe NBA finals, young players, good young guard locked into a term in New York City, playing for the legendary Knicks franchise. That becomes a destination again, boom, like that, as opposed to middling in the middle or 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 being on the outside looking in as they've been for the last decade plus pretty much. Yeah. And Eric, to your point though, I mean, they were, they did advance. They did have a, uh, you know, a, a series against Atlanta. Um, not advanced, one year. But they did have a one playoff series against Atlanta. And then, you know, questions asked as they, you know, were terrible or, or, or missed the action uh, a year ago. And now they're back. And the addition of Brunson has really helped. Um, you know, I think, I think Tom Thibodeau kind of establishing himself and putting his systems in and getting the right players that fit his system. I mean, people were calling for his head at the beginning of the year in November and, and December. Yeah. And now, as you said, they could very well end up in the conference finals. So uh, I, I'm with you though, Eric, and I, I will never ever be a proponent of losing purposely. It just does not set the culture properly with your organization Winning makes your players look better. As I said, it makes your organization looks better. People will cast you in a different light in terms of being a destination or a team that has potential and they want to play for. Uh, so I, I never buy into that. Oh, let's, let's lose. Let's go in the tank because it's easy to tear it down. 
it's tougher to build it back up. And once you build it back up, you never want to take steps backwards. Well, a man that knows the New York Knicks quite well, former general manager of the Knicks, a member of their front office, and of course, former GM of the Toronto Raptors as well, joining us on the line, Glenn Grunwald. Expertise on a, on a number of levels here. As a, as a man who's done it for a couple of different organizations, as a general manager, as an executive, um, I could ask you in general about any team, but when it comes to the Raptors, or again, I guess, as I say, any team, what does it look like in an offseason when you've made a move with your head coach, when you've decided to move on from a head coach, you're now in a search for uh, a new head coach, you're in the interview process, while you're also trying to prepare for a draft, do some draft workouts, and keep an eye on free agency looming? Oh, it's just a few things going on. Like, How does this all come together as a front office, as an organization, when you're making major steps and major moves like this? Well, you're right, Ian. It is a big project in and of itself. And then when you make a coaching change, generally, you know, things haven't gone as well as you had hoped. Uh, so it, it is a, uh, uh, a very busy offseason coming up for the Raptors. But you either divide it up. You know, they have a, a excellent staff surrounding Masai, whether it's Bobby Webster or someone else. I mean, they're, they're going to be able to figure out things. And, and they've, you know, they've done this before. So, so they'll be able to, to figure it out. It, it is a big process, though, and it can be very involved. You know, some, sometimes, though, you have a, a target in mind already, uh, whether it's from past experience or prior relationships that you know you want to go after, and you know that's the person you want. Uh, so sometimes it can be a little bit simpler, but if they're going to do a very broad and expansive coaching search and do all the research and background checks, then it's going to take a little bit more time and require a little more time and resources. Glenn, let me back up. Um, how do you get to that point where you decide you're going to make a change when it's not it's not an obvious one? It's not, you know, four years of winning 18, but we got to do something here. We have more talent than this. But, I mean, you look at right now as we speak, there, there there's, there's two jobs with Toronto and, and Houston. Well, Houston's job just got filled, but... I mean, you look at a job like, I don't know, Memphis or the Clippers or some of these places where there's there's talent. I mean, Atlanta decided to make a move with Nate, and they, they made it kind of midseason, where it doesn't, from the outside anyway, Glenn, it doesn't look that bad. And I'm sure there are conversations within the organization, and then you kind of start taking steps, and next thing you know, you're in the market for a coach. Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, it's it's a high-pressure business, and, and it's about expectations. So, you know, in Atlanta, obviously, had higher expectations than they achieved, uh, whereas, it, uh, you know, a team that's rebuilding will have lower expectations. So it's about, uh, you know, the expectations and, and, and the coach's role in either achieving those or not achieving those sort of determines uh, what's going to happen. And that's why it's important uh, for uh, a coach and a general manager to be on the same page, uh, to understand and appreciate each his job and responsibility, but also to to manage those expectations and to work under the same vision and the same values so that that relationship continues, that good communication continues. And, and that's why I think that the relationship between the coach and the general manager, the ultimate decision maker, uh, is is the most critical one in, in a basketball franchise and probably most sports franchises because that's that's where we really see that, uh, that everyone's working together on and off the court. 
you know, and, you know Eric, go I ahead, Jonesy. Jump yeah, go ahead. Say, I just wanted to jump in and say I forgot. I know Detroit's still interviewing too, so I, I, I neglected. I didn't want people to think that all of a sudden that job was filled. Well, you're right, Glenn. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and in the end, you're right. Houston's full, but there is still because it's, it's Detroit. Glenn, let me ask you this. Um, and, and again, I was talking off the top about sort of in general, but more specifically um, about the Raptors. Uh, and I again, I'll, I'll preface this by saying this is not I'm not casting any judgment one way or the other. Heck, I, you know, I've never had the job, never will have the job. How difficult do you think the decision was for Masai and his management team to come to when you sort of, sort of take a step back, Glenn, and look from 30,000 feet? The Raptors have 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 ousted two coach of the year winners in the last six years and Masai even with his Denver days has, has ousted three coach of the year winners. So it, it clearly at the end of the day, if he feels like he isn't getting what he needs from his head coach, or if he needs a new voice or a new direction, he's certainly not shy to make the move, but that can't be an easy decision when you're dealing with people who have a proven track record, let alone hardware. Yeah, no, you're right. It is uh, always a difficult thing to make any sort of personnel change like that, whether it's uh, somebody in the front office or a scout or the head coach. So it's particularly where a guy that's such a good guy is Nick Nick Nurses. You know, he's such a good person and such a you know great person to collaborate with. Uh, so and ten years there and five years as the head coach. So that's that's a long relationship that's ending. But uh, you know, it seems to have ended on fairly good terms, and uh, that's. I'm, you know, hopeful that that is in fact the case. And I, you know, both both Masai and Nick are great basketball guys and great people, and they're they're all going to land on their feet. And and uh, but it is certainly something you don't want to have happen. You want to have the continuity as best you can. But sometimes you've got to make tough decisions as a president or vice chairman, and uh, that's what Masai has shown his ability to do. And generally, those have been the good decisions. You know, you look at his track record; he certainly. Uh, somebody that has had tremendous success and, and made the tough decisions that seem to have worked out. Glenn, on the other side, I mean, you got a few teams that, um, you know, you talk about the coach and the GM being on the same page, and I, I'm looking at the, the current playoffs now where uh, the Lakers have, you know, have come from the dead. I mean, they were they were below the line, and now they're, you know, they're going to one game at home trying to advance to the second round, the first, well, the second playing team after Miami to do that. And then I look at a situation like Sacramento. Yes, they're down right now, but they had a tremendous season uh, with, you know, Monty McNair and, and Mike Brown on the same page. It clicks there, but how much luck goes into something like that too, Glenn? Because I've heard you talk about that too. Sometimes you got to get lucky. Yeah, well, injuries, uh, you know, you do your best you can with the injuries and load management, making sure you have a great medical staff, you know, which obviously the Raptors do. Uh, but, you know, injuries play a part. Uh, and then, you know, sometimes you have people throw in a shot and, you know, that overtime shot last night that uh, Jimmy Butler hit, uh, you know, looking like Bobby Orr in reverse, uh, flying across the floor horizontally, it goes in. You know, that's, there's a little luck involved in that too. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, it's 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 a very competitive situation, and and uh, you know, little things can make a huge difference. But you know, you you again, you gotta understand and appreciate that there's some good fortune and bad fortune, but also you gotta make sure you're you're making you're putting your team in the best chance possible to be successful. And I think that's that was the goal in terms of making the change in in in, in Raptorland. 
Hey, Glenn, when you talk about the luck element, um, I, I think that often gets overlooked. The, the, the sort of luck, the chemistry, the right place, right time, right moment in time for a player, an individual, let alone a team. Um, how difficult is that decision or that line for a GM, for a, a coach, for a president, for a management team to walk when you're trying to balance? Like, again, let's use Toronto as the example. I think that most of us would agree on paper, talent-wise, we anticipated the Raptors might be a little better this year. They might have a better record. They were a playoff team in most people's eyes, but it didn't play out that way. So was that the players? Was that the coach? Was that a little bit of luck? Was that injuries? Was it things not going the right way for them? And then yet you just rewind to two weeks ago. There they are with an 18, 19 point lead against Chicago. We we're thinking, heck, if they get Miami, they had a, they got what three wins over the heat in the regular season. They could beat Miami. Maybe they get into the first round and they've had success against Milwaukee, but it all blew up in their face. So how do you kind of make that judgment of luck? versus talent versus what we've got now versus what the future looks like and trying to put that all in the pot and come up with some sort of dish or recipe. Well, you're right. You try and avoid that recency bias and look over a longer term, but at the same time, you know, the the most recent information may be the most uh, appropriate to review. So, you know, I know Masai mentioned in his press conference that, uh, you know, he had felt this way for a long time that the team wasn't, wasn't right for whatever reason. And, you have to evaluate all those those things: injuries, luck, uh, you know, personal problems, uh, um, you know, player combinations, uh, player off-court issues. All those things factor into it. Some of them are the coach's uh, responsibility, and some are beyond his control. So, you know, but again, you're looking forward to to what's going to happen in the future, and and are you on the same page? Do you see this, the players the same way? Do you play the, the way you you think you should be playing? Uh, and it's 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 also about looking forward, not just what happened in the past. Obviously, that's that's a big part of it. But you also want to look forward in terms of how are we going to take the next step forward. Glenn, last one for you here, um, and and it, I think it ties into what I just asked. But the patience element of all this as well, when you're trying to build something and being patient and waiting for those parts to either develop or for that opportunity to acquire a new part or a complementary part. I look at Philadelphia, how long it's taken to maybe get to where they are with Joel Embiid, but perhaps their patience, ultimately trusting the process, pays off. The patience for New York, one of your former clubs, to finally get to where they are, to acquire Brunson as a free agent last offseason, to grow and build with some of their young players, and now here they are. How tough can that be to stay the line, stay the course, and have that patience? It's a good, great, great point. And, uh, you know, is it uh, a chicken or the egg, right? Is, is there longevity there because the, the success has been had? Or is there success because there's been longevity and, and people are continuing to work together and continue to refine and improve the processes and the product? Uh, uh, so, yeah, you're right. I, I think, uh, you know, there's going to be ups and downs in any franchise. There's cycles of winning and losing. There's rebuilding and, and seizing the moment. And, uh you know, the Raptors are trying to get back to seizing the moment and they've decided that, you know, making a change in the coaching uh, uh, ranks is the best way to do it. And, you know, that, that can work or it cannot. Hey, Glenn, thanks for the time. Appreciate this. Okay. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, thanks Glenn. That was the former general manager of the Toronto Raptors and, uh, of course, with the New York Knicks as well, Glenn Grunwald. Jonesy, uh, before we move on to our next guest, uh, perhaps as it relates to our conversation that we just had with Glenn, there are already rumblings. And again, it's rumor, 
and we'll see if 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 sort of uh, the rumor mill ends up being you know fact or fiction or otherwise. But there are those in Milwaukee wondering, all right, is it time to move on from Mike Budenholzer? Is he to blame? It's easier to get rid of one person than it is to get rid of 12 or 15. It's easier to get rid of the coach than it is the players. Do you think Coach Bud has had his message or his voice wear out with the Bucks? Could Milwaukee be looking in a new direction, and could they be looking in maybe Nick Nurse's direction? Um, I mean, I would say they got they got beat by a team that played harder and better, and they were the masters of their own demise. I mean, what did we talk about with the Raptors losing a 19-point lead to Chicago? We looked at uh, lack of execution, being passive, uh, not doing what built the lead for you, and the big one, missing free throws. Go back and look at the free throw shooting. And if I could get inside the head of Giannis especially, I would just, I would have to be able to correct something because you could see at one point Milwaukee was just, we talk about it gets contagious. They were just shooting to shoot the shots, not shooting to make them. And they were hoisting them up there from the free throw line and hoping they would go in. So, yeah, I'm sure, as you always say, Eric, what's your expression? The, the blame pie, there's lots to slice up. The players for mm-hmm. lack of execution, bad decisions. Giannis with, Giannis with seven turnovers, missing you know, double figures in free throws, fouling Max Struess on a three-pointer. Uh, you know, critical turnovers by other players late in the game, botched defensive assignments. That's on the players. I talked about earlier what I think might, uh, you know, have been going through the mind or the decisions made by the coaching stuff. There's a lot to put together there that adds up to the loss. I'm not sure Milwaukee's making that move right now with Coach Bud. I mean, the the sample size has been really good the last of the while, and they do have a title just a few years ago. That being said, uh, it was only five years ago that the the, Raptors had the last title that wasn't in a bubble. So uh, you you never know what the front office is thinking. And it's like Glenn said, there's a lot that goes into that evaluation before you take the steps down the road and suddenly you get to the point where, yeah, we're going to make a change. Well, you mentioned – well, I brought it up as well. Nick Nurse and the title from four years ago in the summer of 2019. And uh, Nick Nurse now uh, no longer head coach of the Toronto Raptors. That news came basically a week ago. For more on Nurse and what ultimately unfolded in Toronto, pleased to be joined by longtime writer. Uh, he's been there since day one covering the Raptors for the Toronto Star National NBA writer as well, Doug Smith. Doug, uh, not sure which direction the Raptors may be leaning right now. We'll, we'll get into that later on, perhaps, and, and, and maybe uh, chat about where they might go, uh, especially with Ime Udoka heading to Houston now and some of the comments that he made related to the Raptors and other teams as well. But putting all that aside for a second, let me go back a few days. And, folks, if you haven't checked it out, um, well, you should. Go back uh, to, I believe it was on April 23rd on, on Sunday, but I'm sure you can find the link uh, to, the, to the archives uh, on the Toronto Star on their website. Um, and find the article that Doug had that really broke down uh, damn near week to week, but certainly, uh, Smitty, month to month of how things kind of unfolded or, dare I even say, unraveled over, over the course of the season for the Raptors and for Nick Nurse and Doug Smith joining us right now. And, Smitty, maybe um, I'm not going to ask you to recap your entire piece here, but maybe give us a little synopsis of, of how 
it all came together in your eyes based on now that we've heard from Nick Nurse, we've heard from Masai Ujiri and, and kind of how things kind of went off the rails um, over the course of the last eight, nine months? I think, Eric, uh, Jonesy, there were, just, there were just little signs all through the year that things weren't good. They weren't great. They weren't horrible. But there were little telltale signs. It started early in the year with defining roles and how much they were going to run through Fred and how much they are going to run through Pascal or Barnes or Ananobi. And, and then I think there were some issues on the coaching staff. I'm not sure that Nick and Earl Watson are going to ever, ever share dinner. But, you know, that's... But that's friction on coaching staff is not new, and it's not unique to this sort of organization. But it, it is a, it was a thing. It was a little things that were out there, and you know the, the two games in New Orleans and Brooklyn at the end of November, the first of December, that was a very troubling time. And as I had to fly down, to not read the riot act, but to meet with guys and say, look, let's try to figure this out. And that's when they had the great, now infamous team meeting. Came home and beat Orlando, which me, you, and two of our friends could give Orlando a game. Every time they were turning it around, then they lost seven of eight. So, you know, there were, there were like these little things at different points in the season that indicated some sense of dysfunction. And I think at the end, and I said it from the day after the season ended, I think everybody just got tired of everybody. I think you got tired of each other. And I think just, I don't think there was one, there's no one person to blame. There's no one thing to point to, but, there were, it was just time. It was just time. Everybody just felt it was okay. We need to reset. And that's what they've done. And who knows where they're going to go, but I think it's important that they did it. Uh, Doug, uh, you know, and I, and I see what you're saying and times you do, you do reset, but there are still uh, some valuable things. I mean, when you're going through a renovation, you don't throw everything out. You, you do keep some stuff. You do keep some of the good stuff. And I think about, um, you know, on the coaching staff, if they're making all those changes, what what about a guy like Adrian Griffin? Uh, you know, what about a guy like that who has kind of been here, knows something about the organization, knows something about the players? I mean, you're not – if you bring another coach in and he still is there or if he interviews and he's successful, and look, that whole front is very quiet right now. But there's still some salvageable stuff not just players that you, you would probably consider in the organization. Oh, yeah, I, I think that I absolutely know that they'll give Griffin an interview, and they should because he, you know, he acted as a head coach a couple games that Nick missed. He's been through the interview process in Chicago and Los Angeles and didn't get either of those jobs, but doesn't mean he wasn't qualified or wasn't capable. They just, each franchise went a different direction. I'm, I'm sure they will talk to him very seriously, and, you know, look at Mazai's history. When he let Casey go, he went to the coaching staff to find a replacement. Maybe he does that again, or maybe maybe the personalities are such that they want a different person in there. I, I don't know. I'm not, I can't obviously read Masai and Bobby's minds on this, but you know, they'll, they'll talk to Griff, but I think they're going to talk to a bunch of people outside the organization too because one thing Masai said that last that, that media day that he, when he met with us for those 45 minutes was they need to find some sort of enthusiasm some sort of a, a level of fun, a level of excitement. And I'm not sure you get that by just moving a guy six feet to the left. Maybe you do, but I'm not sure you do. And uh, maybe that's going to be a hard question for the, the management to answer. Speaking with Doug Smith, Doug, uh, you, you kind of just answered it, but I'm going to follow up and ask the same type of question anyway. Do you, do you think, do you think that a new voice – 
new face, new personality is what ultimately is needed as opposed to shifting over six feet and sliding down the bench? Or is that maybe the better route in terms of maintaining some semblance of consistency and continuity with a core that is still pretty good, but yet we don't even know if that core is going to be in place by the time September rolls around. So is it chicken egg type situation or how do you see it unfolding that way? No, Eric, you're absolutely right on that. You, until you know what Mazai is thinking about his players, I think that goes hand in hand what he's going to think about with his coaching. And I think he has an idea uh, right now what he wants to do with that, that core group. There's, uh, there's six guys. There's the five starters and Gary Trent Jr. I don't think all six can come back. And I'm sure that Mazai and Bobby don't think all six can come back. What four stay, what five stay is entirely going to be dependent on what they can get for them on the market. But until you decide whether you're going to jettison three of them, two of them, one of them, I think you have to have that in mind. I think that goes hand in hand with what you want in a coach to come in. And so I, I don't, I don't mean to duck the question. I do think a new voice is needed, but because in part, because I think they need a new voice, but in part, because they're going to look a little bit different in key spots come September. Doug, in your opinion, and, you know, I know what I think about this just because of the, the way the league is right now. But how far away do you think they are recognizing that um, Miami has advanced out of the play-in? Uh, Atlanta, as we record this, uh, still alive. You know, you look at the Lakers, the way they've come roaring back from, you know, a 12th place in the West at one point, like, like how far away do you think this team really is with a new voice and a couple of tweaks to personnel? Oh, I don't, I don't think they're far at all, Jones. I think they, this yeah. could have been a, this could have been a 48 win team with a couple of breaks here and there. And if that happens and they're fifth or sixth or seventh, who knows? Once you get in, anything can happen. As we've seen with Miami, Miami loses hero. They, 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 the Butler have to go crazy for two straight games. The Bucks were like far more talented man to man, but they didn't win. And once you get in, you figure stuff out. And but the thing is, you got to get in. They didn't get in, so that's why they got to make changes. But once, like on this team, it's not fair, not far from being absolutely right there to challenge to play in the Eastern Conference Finals. I don't think, with a couple of minor changes here and there. Obviously, you know, we all know the holes. The bench isn't good enough. They don't shoot it good enough. They lost a lot of tight games down the stretch because they couldn't. They didn't finish very well. But I think those are not. They don't require major surgery. They require a little bit of nip and tuck here. Okay, so based on that, Smitty, if if you're saying you don't think major surgery, so would you then anticipate of like let's just deal with the starters of the main core guys, the starting five. You think it could very well be the same as. It is like looking at next year, like you wouldn't anticipate a deal involving Siakam or Ananobi or Van Vliet. And I would assume obviously not Barnes. Like you don't think any of them could be on the move. Oh, I think all of them could be on the move. And that includes Barnes. I think, I think Mazai has to go out and find out what he can get for each of his best players. And whether, whether he's satisfied with the return will determine whether he wants to make that move or not. But they have players that other teams want that they could get something in return for. And I don't think anybody's untouchable. Uh, and I know 
I get Barnes is going to be really, really going to be a really, really good player. We think, but is he today? I don't know. But so does that limit his value on the market? Probably a little bit. You're going to have to pay Fred Van Vliet a lot of money. Is there something you could turn him into? Again, I don't know. Siakam is the most intriguing bit because his salary is so big, you can get a bunch of guys back for him. So I think Mazai is going to shop them all. And not not like aggressively, but he's going to call, when teams call him and say, hey, is this guy available? He's always going to say, well, let's talk. You may make me an offer. And that's for all, all the five stars and Trent. And probably Boucher. If you're looking at those, the seven key guys, right? I, I don't think any of them, I don't think any of them are dead bolt locks to be here in September. Smitty, I always appreciate the time, man. Thanks for this. All right, guys. All right, guys. Back to down the road. That was Doug Smith of the Toronto Star. We're going to step aside for one quick moment and come back with more on Nick Nurse, but from a Canada basketball perspective, as uh, we've got more on tap for you folks with Smith and Jones. Welcome back to Smith and Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you. Subscribe to Smith and Jones wherever you get your podcasts. Download, subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks to Glenn Grunwald and Doug Smith for joining us as we shift the conversation now to, well, another angle as it relates to the Nick Nurse story. Again, it was basically a week ago, Nick Nurse uh, removed as head coach of the Toronto Raptors, but still head coach for the Canadian Senior Men's National Team. And for more on that, we are pleased to be joined by the president and CEO of Canada Basketball, Michael Bartlett. Uh, Michael, we always appreciate your time. You're, you're like the, you, you might be the best or the biggest friend of the show. I think you've joined us. Uh, you know, like we, we got to get the the green jacket or something for guests that come on like five times or something, five plus times. Yeah. You're like you know a Saturday Night Live host or something here. So well, we appreciate time your time. Many time caller is that, is that the way it goes? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, something like that, something like that. Um, but we always love tapping into you. And listen, we can we can. We can find a bunch of topics to discuss. We've got the World Cup draw coming up this weekend. Uh, some great news that came out last week regarding Global Jam. Um, but one of the first things that popped into my mind, and I'm sure many others as well, when the Toronto Raptors made the announcement regarding Nick Nurse and relieving him of his head coaching duties, right away, okay, is that going to have any impact at all on Canada basketball? Now, my assumption is it wouldn't, it shouldn't, based on the fact that there are other head coaches in the NBA working for various organizations that are also head coaches of other countries across the globe, not just Canada, U.S., or otherwise. So I'm assuming everything's status quo. I know you've already said some stuff in the papers, but at least we wanted to ask you and get it official on our show and talk a little bit about it. Is there anything to talk about or discuss as it relates to Nick Nurse and his job with Canada basketball? Um, no, and, and certainly <laughs> you're not the only one to have, have asked and wondered and you know, certainly, we do have a very strong partnership with the Toronto Raptors, one that uh, has been in place for you know well over a decade now, or probably two decades. But our contract with our coaches at all programs is directly with the coaches themselves. So we hired uh, Nick Nurse in 2019 by you know coming to an agreement with Nick Nurse, and we have hired subsequent coaches. Uh, as part of this program, you know, even on the women's side with Victor LaPena, those are with the individual. So we believe as a program and Rowan and leadership team have been spending a lot of time with Nick over the last number of years and building out this plan for consistency. 
the consistency plays out not just in the roster and athletes that we're inviting to camp and the style of play that we're deploying, but a big part of that style of the play piece is is with respect to the coaching staff that's on that bench. So it's important for us as a program, we believe, in order to achieve the ambitions that we have globally is to have a consistent coaching staff that we can count on to match up with a consistent roster that we can count on. So uh, Nick's with us, um, you know, locked and loaded and, and sights set on the World Cup this summer, qualifying for Paris next summer, and then doing our job in Paris to uh, to give Canada a reason to, to be proud of, of basketball in this country. Michael, I would assume it would be the same for uh, you know his his grinding, hardworking assistants. Uh, I, I look at some of the names that were also on that Raptor bench with him that are connected to Canada: Nate Bjorkren, Nathaniel Mitchell, John Goodwillie. Uh, tell me if there's anybody else that I'm missing, but um, John Corbaccio. Um, like uh, my assumption is that those guys are with Nick too, and will still continue to. Uh, you, you know, make up, comprise the staff of the Canadian senior men's coaching staff. Yeah, that's that's our crew. That's uh, we've been in, um, you know, in the trenches with that group actually, even through through back to the Victoria OQT, and then some of them as far back as 2019 in our most recent World Cup. Uh, that consistency, uh, not just in the head coaching, but in our assistant uh, ranks as well. And when you look at our training staff and beyond. Um, you know, that's in place for a reason, and uh, we believe it, it provides us, just like our athlete talent, with the best possible opportunity to, to win on the international stage. So we will continue to hold ourselves accountable to make sure that you know, we're resourcing as best we can around our program, and a big part of that is you know, the best coaches available to us, and we believe we've got that, that crew in, in position. I know you, you you spoke just a couple of moments ago about the relationship with the Raptors that you've had for a, a decade plus. Have you had a conversation yet with anybody from the Raptors as it relates to uh, you know you, you know the sharing of resources? Let's say if it's fair to call it that. I know you guys have had access to the practice facility and 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 whatnot. Um, is that going to be a problem? I would guess. I don't want to put words in your mouth. I would guess it's maybe not a problem as long as Nick Nurse isn't working for another team, but if Nick Nurse were to get a job with another organization, would that be a problem using Raptor facilities and Raptor resources from a Canada basketball perspective? Uh, you know, again, our, our partnerships with the Raptors. So you know, that longstanding relationship is good for basketball in this country. Um, you know, there are certain scenarios I'm sure that we haven't contemplated that might make the nuances a little more unique moving forward, but ultimately you know, we didn't call specifically with this question, but I know we're locked and loaded, um, you know, to be using Raptor resources for training camps. We've actually got a 3x3 women's camp that's going to be dropping into OVO next weekend. Um, we've got our women's team coming in June. They'll be using Raptor training camp, and then the plan is for our men uh, to do the same in August. So it's, you know, a benefit for us, a unique benefit for us as a federation to have a relationship um, with this NBA program in, in the Toronto Raptors. We know USAB benefits from, you know, relationships with a lot of the NBA teams that their coaches and GMs come from as well. So it's, it's not unique to the North American uh, federations, but for us, you know, that association with the Raptors is a real game changer and, you know, we couldn't appreciate it more and having access to their practice facilities is a big part of 
delivering the pro experience that we've promised our athletes because they're all pros around the world, either in the NBA, WNBA, or or in Europe, and it's about time that, that we level up the training and resources that they have available to them uh, when they're uh, running with the Team Canada logo on. Michael, you mentioned the World Cup, but before the World Cup, uh, you know, Global Jam is uh, gathering momentum again, and you and I spoke very, very, uh, uh, very quickly after the tournament got going uh, last year, and you said, everybody's calling me already about next year. We're one day in and I'm getting phone calls about, Hey, is this going on next year? Can we get in? And, and, uh, and, and we had talked about, you know, as a organization, making sure that we had strong competition. Well, it got even stronger this year. If, if you could say that with the addition of the Kentucky men's team, and the Louisville women's team. Um, only problem is, Hilly Van Lith is in the transfer portal, so I don't know if we're going to see her at Global Jam. But um, when I when I look at uh, you know John Calipari in the University of Kentucky, that's that's a good get. And I look at you know an African you know basically selecting from all the different countries in Africa. Uh, boy, G- Global Jam is is really dare I say hitting the world stage right now. Yeah, it certainly is. And, and actually, I think I got a chance to break some news on your show. I just saw Haley signed uh, with LSU, believe it or not. <laughs> She's uh, just wow. jumped from Louisville over to LSU. So I think they might be making two White House visits in a row. Um, <laughs> yeah, ultimately, yeah, like, in, in fact, it was Coach Cal uh, from Kentucky was one of those calls last, last year. He had heard about uh, the tournament and more so about like the player experience and, and how well their athletes and coaching staff were treated um, and the level of competition. And that's a big thing for these NCAA programs. They, they want to play games that make them better going into the season. And they get a few times every three or four years where they're able to take on an international tour. And this tournament, I think, is presenting itself as a really viable and competitive option for these NCAA programs to travel, give their kids a cool experience, but then also to get some tough runs in, and that's important for their development. So both with Louisville and Kentucky being you know, worldly renowned programs. Uh, some of our best Canadian athletes actually have come through those programs. When you look at Kentucky, uh, with Shea and Jamal and Jamal and, and, and others. And then of course our team captain for team Canada on the women's program last year, Marissa Russell plays for Louisville. Um, we've put her in the tough spot, um, to choose. It wasn't much of a choice. She, uh, she put Canada right away. So she's going to get to run against, uh, her Louisville uh, teammates this year at Global Jam, which will be a unique twist too. And then last year when Masai came to one of the games, we were just kind of shooting shooting up about like what possibilities we could have in the future of bringing African teams to Global Jam and uh, that lit a fire. And, and all of a sudden an idea turned into a whole bunch of phone calls and we've been able to pull together, uh, working very closely with some programs over in Africa to bring two African select teams and men and a women uh, to Global Jam. So these are just, you know, they're ambitious goals of ours that somehow we're pulling together maybe even sooner than we thought possible. Uh, but it speaks to, you know, the honestly, the, the great work that the Canada basketball staff are doing, my teammates are doing to turn ourselves into a basketball event company. Uh, that's important. 
for more games on home soil. It's important for more games on television. It's important, you know, for commercial viability as well. And, uh, you know, I'm really proud of the effort that they've put in over these last uh, 24 months to turn these, like I said, very ambitious ideas into outcomes really quickly. Michael, when we sit here and talk about Global Jam and the expansion of the event only one year into its uh, into its existence, um, the success of the, the women's program, the men as well, eyeing the World Cup, hoping for the Olympics, et cetera. Let me ask you specifically, If and I know it's sometimes hard for people in general. I know me, Jonesy, I'm going to speak for him, I guess. It's always hard to talk about yourself. Um, but if you step back for a second or sit back and, and, and rewind to when you took the job to where you are right now, how far down the path are you? How many how many goals have you checked off your list in terms of what you want for this program and, and you know what work is still needed to be done? Outside of obviously, yes, I, I know you'd love to have a world championship on your mantle and an Olympic gold medal or some sort of medal, et cetera. But I'm talking just in general, how many things mm-hmm. have you actually checked off in terms of what you wanted to do with Canada basketball? Well, it's a great question. I think We've lined up, I'm really proud that we've lined up the dominoes in what I believe to be the right sequence um, towards the ultimate goals. Because there is a lot of hype about Canada basketball right now and, you know, the path that we're on. But we're also very quick as a team, as a staff team, as a high performance team, as athletes, to say we haven't really accomplished anything yet we've put ourselves in a great position to accomplish what we want Um, i'm also really proud that the ambitions inside the organization don't just stop at top of podium it's certainly lining up for us to be a globally competitive top ranked program at every age group including senior teams, you know, for years to come. And that's, you know, what we want for ourselves. We want Canada and basketball to be known for, you know, being great internationally. But my teammates, our board, our athletes, everybody seems to really be committed to what we'll do once we're creating those moments of pride for the country. Um, what we do the minutes after the win, the days after the win, the weeks after the win, and what we can stand for for the country. Not just the win, but it's the win plus that we're spending a lot of time talking about. And at a time when, you know, the country, you know, admittedly rallies around sport when it is winning, we want to have the country rally around basketball. But then, as we saw what happened when the Raptors won in 2019, Uh, for good community and Canada outcomes to come from it as well. Um, So I'm really proud that the dominoes are lining up, but there's a double and triple bottom line that we're really focused on. There's a financial bottom line, certainly, but that's so so that we can invest back in better basketball. There's a medal count bottom line, but then there's also a good for Canada bottom line. And and it might sound cheesy, but we've kind of hardwired ourselves that way. and, And the team that we've put in place, um, as an organization, is really motivated by that outcome too. It's, uh, it's a fun, fun path to be on right now. Well, you know the the, the fun and the path continues, Michael. Both of them. Um, on Saturday, we're going to have the draw for the 
World Cup of basketball, we already know that our first round Canada will be in Indonesia and, and the finals are in the Philippines, but um, pool play is so important, right? And sometimes it is the luck of the draw and who you draw and who you play and when you play them and all of these things. And uh, I know you've got some information for our listeners on, on what's going on and where we might land and who we might be seeing in our, in our first preliminary uh, round games. Yeah, the FIBA calculus degree is in uh, full effect right now <laughs> as we try to dissect how this all looks. Um, so wait, here wait, we wait, know. Wait, yes. Michael, Michael, I, I hope part of the calculus degree does not include inputting money into the machine. <laughs> no, not at all. But, okay. Uh, okay. gosh, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out what the plus-minus tiebreakers look like in round two. That's uh, it's going to be uh, – let's just score a lot of – points and then we don't have to worry about it um ultimately yeah so you you put it well we're in jakarta to start um for the first two rounds so in in the first round we'll be in pool h it looks like based on the pot assignments um, and that draw will take place as you said 7 a.m eastern on saturday we've got either france serbia or lithuania in our pool it'll be one of those three uh, Slovenia is also in that pot, but they've already been assigned to the, uh, a pool in Japan, so they'll be out of the mix for us. Uh, then it'll be either one of China, Latvia, or Georgia, and then one of Lebanon, Egypt, who is actually coached by uh, Roy Rana, a Canadian, uh, South Sudan, yeah. or Camp Verde. So we kind of know what we're going to look like in, in pot one. Um, there's some world-beating teams there. France, Serbia, Lithuania are all very talented. We have to finish in the top two of that pool after playing our three games in round one to move on to round two, the, the Sweet 16 of FIBA. Round two will then be a crossover against the other pool that's being situated in Jakarta. So we'll play, uh, if we're in the top two, we'll play the top two teams from that other pool, and then it gets into a bit more FIBA calculus to determine uh, wins, losses, and plus-minus combos on who moves on to Manila. Uh, that last game in round two, I think we're targeting, it looks like September 3rd, which would mean we'd travel, ideally moving on, we'd travel September 4th into Manila, and then we'd take up in quarterfinal games starting September 6th. Parallel to all of that is, like, that's the path to meddling at the World Cup, but the path to Paris doesn't require a medal. It requires you to finish in the top two of your region. So we got to keep an eye on, obviously, how the United States is doing, how Brazil, Venezuela, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Dominican, how they're all doing in this tournament, because ultimately they will assign a 1 through 32 ranking in the tournament. And if we're one of the top two ranked America's teams in that group of 32 uh, will automatically punch our ticket to Paris. And, and that's a definitive goal for us in this, in this summer's window. Well, uh, I just want to say this, Michael, just make sure that um, the suitcase I ordered that fits a five foot nine, 100 and how much you weigh now? E? Uh, five foot 152, nine, 152, 155 <laughs> pound with a special priority tag. Do not weigh this oversized baggage. Yeah. Just, so, just so if I decide to go. It might, it might be the only way I get there. If you got to stick me with the, with the pets under the plane, that's fine. But it might be the only way I get there. So I'm, I'm ready, to, I'm ready to, to cram that body in there. <laughs> it's going to be a fun one for sure. And, yeah. you know, but 
just recently, um, you know, Coach and, and Rowan have been reaching out to all the players about the dates to arrive and when the competition for roster spots will take place. And, you know, I underline competition there. It will be a competition. It's not, uh, we're not waiting on the first 12 to show. You know, there's 20 or so guys that are interested in being a part of this mix and being a part of this team and have earned the shot by being a part of our core winter or summer rosters. And uh, we're excited about the competition and what that will mean. And then we'll take off to Germany and then on to Spain and then finally into Jakarta. But we'll be ready. We're playing a lot of games before we get to the what looks to be August 25th tip-off in Jakarta. And uh, the games are what the guys ask for, and that's what we're delivering. Hey, Michael, I, I, I told Jonesy, I just texted him a second ago, I said I was done, we're ready to wrap up. But you know what, I do have a follow-up here. Because as you were sitting back talking to me about the Americas, and this is going to sound like the Canadian that's like crying poor or something, I suppose, but and I don't know if you'll have anything to say to this or not. But as you're talking about the potential of, of getting one of those guaranteed slots, whether you medal or not, right away my brain goes to, as a Torontonian, man, this sounds like the American League East in baseball. Like you're stuck in the division with the Red Sox and the Yankees, and even though Tampa draws no fans, they've always got a great pitching staff, and they're great, and all of a sudden Baltimore's come along, and it's clearly the best division in baseball. And no matter how good your season is, if you're the Jays, you need to have a great season. I know there are talented teams across the globe in all continents, certainly in Europe. But when you're in the Americas, and I know Canada wants, and Jonesy, I'm, I'm, I'm taking what you've said a million times over the last X number of years, that Canada should be, should be second to none other than maybe the United States. I get all that. But the fact is they are in your same region, your same zone. So when you're going into this, it's almost like a foregone conclusion that the U.S. is going to have one of those two. So really, you're competing up against a whole bunch of countries for one slot. Do you see FIBA ever changing their rules or the parameters? Because, Michael, it would seem like on the outside looking in, it's certainly, quote unquote, easier for some other countries in other continents or in other regions to get in as opposed to those, not just Canada, but those that are in the Americas. Yeah, I'd do I ever see the rules changing? Probably not. Like the one thing about the international federation model is, you know, for the most part, they're based out of Europe. And and while I don't believe they're conscious biases, I think some unconscious biases and recency biases and perspectives are probably more European focused. Um, What I can tell you though, and, and so that's not to, it's not meant to be a slight at FIBA. It's it's the reality. I, I can understand how you know that that might play a factor. What I can tell you though is FIBA is all in on Canada being great. They know that that's great for international basketball. They know it's great for the Americas region. Uh, we continue to receive um, you know support is probably the wrong word, but you know some some collaboration and consultation about, you know, how we can help elevate our programs and deliver pro experiences for our programs within the budgets that we have available to us so that our players will show up because it's in FIBA's best interest too. just even having us selected um, by Jakarta so that for the last five months, we've known where we're going to play out of. We've done our scouting trips. We know the hotels that we're using. We've got our security plan in place. We're not waiting for the draw. Um, that's new for us and being a part of the mix in FIBA's eyes in terms of one of those federations that they got to work a little bit more closely with because they know the value that we bring to the table. We're seeing that 
impact now in the way that we're able to execute our program. And it's a good thing. So while I don't anticipate the rules will change that much, and I, gosh, I hope not because I just learned the rules. It took me that long um, with the FIBA rule book. But ultimately, I do feel that FIBA's in our corner because they know we'd be great for the global game if we're great. Awesome, Michael. Thanks very much. That was the president and CEO of Canada Basketball, Michael Bartlett. As I joked off the top, Jonesy, I think he's joined us four, five, six times over the course of the season, and that's a good thing because we don't just bring – hey, we would bring him on just to chat. We would bring him on as sort of this honorary guest host or co-host, but we've brought him on because there has been stuff to talk about. There has been news, and that's a good thing for Canada Basketball when you constantly have announcements to make, tournaments, games, teams – hirings, success, etc. That's something that we haven't seen for quite some time on the men's and or women's side. And it's been a good run now under Michael Bartlett for the Canadian program and hopefully even better things to come on all sides this summer. Well, Eric, I, I just think, you know, and I, again, maybe I'm too close to the, to the fire and I'm, I'm warmed nicely by it. But as a board member, I just see continuing and flourishing success coming for Canada basketball, Uh, you know, global jam, the under 23 teams uh, on both the men's and women's side. We look at, uh, you know, top 10 draft picks in the WNBA, look at all our young players uh, in the NBA doing well, Uh, all the kids in March madness, heck the player of the year, the college player of the year this year in men's basketball in the NCAA is a Canadian. So there's, there's great, uh, success ahead for Canada. I just, I think this is just the start of it, you know, and everybody knows about the main names, the, the RJ Barrett, the Shea Gilgis Alexander, but boy, did Nikhil Alexander Walker play terrifically for Minnesota in the last couple of games uh, against Jamal Murray, another Canadian. So uh, mm-hmm. Canada's on the map, Eric, we are on the map. And I say that with my chest proudly in the air uh, and we're going to make some noise before this thing is done. Hey, listen, I'm going to be making some noise if you didn't get a bag with some air vents or some holes. You didn't confirm that when you were talking to Bartlett about jamming me in a bag, which I appreciate if that's the one way I get to Jakarta. But, Jones, you didn't say anything about it like air air vents or something. Like, come on. Special order. Once I get the bag, I'll have to have it uh, tricked out and jacked up for you. (laughs) All right, all right. I'm sure there's got to be something on Amazon. All right, folks, again, one last time, a reminder. Subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcast. Download, subscribe rate review and share it again we were in the top 10 across the country last week and we want to be there again so thanks to all of you for being loyal listeners and uh, tuning in to smith and jones on sportsnet 590 the fan